and welcome to the Crossing Church Sermon Podcast. Thank you for listening. We're glad you've connected with us. Our hope is that God speaks to your heart in a new way through this message. If you're new to the Crossing Church, please feel free to reach out to us by visiting our contact page or by paying us a visit. We would love to meet you. This week's sermon podcast begins in three, two, one. Well, columnist David Brooks in an April op-ed piece in the New York Times entitled The Moral Bucket List wrote this. He said, about once a month, I run across a person who radiates an inner light. These people can be in any walk of life. They seem deeply good. They listen well. They make you feel funny and valued. You often catch them looking after other people, and as they do so, their laugh is musical, and their manner is infused with gratitude. They're not thinking about what wonderful work they are doing. They're not thinking about themselves, I think, at all. When I meet such a person, it brightens my whole day. But I confess, I often have a sadder thought. It occurs to me that I've achieved a decent level of career success, but I have not achieved that. I have not achieved that generosity of spirit or that depth of character. We live in the culture of the big me. The meritocracy wants you to promote yourself. Social media wants you to broadcast the highlight reel of your life. Your parents and teachers were always telling you how wonderful you were. Commencement speakers are always telling young people to follow their passions, be true to yourself. This is a vision of life that begins with self and ends with self. But people on the road to character growth do not find their vocations by asking, what do I want from life? They ask, what is life asking of me? How can I match my intrinsic talent with one of the world's deep needs? What Brooks is saying is that the happiest people seem to be people who are not pursuing happiness. In fact, studies have shown that our grandparents, on a whole, looking at, I'm going to talk about this, I think, a little bit next week, but looking at at diaries and journals and writings, our grandparents, on whole, are happier than this generation. You say, wow, they don't have anything. They were like, you know, there was no internet. How could they be happy? I mean, that's ridiculous. On whole, they were a happier generation than we are. The people who are happiest are people who have lost themselves in the pursuit and allegiance to a greater passion than the pursuit that we often find ourselves in now of popularity and security and romantic relationships or success. They somehow have quieted their own inner drive towards self-promotion, towards self-satisfaction and the purient gratification to pursue something higher, something nobler, something, I think, ultimately sweeter. And I think David Brooks hits on one of the key components of the Christian life and Christian responsibility, and one which Jesus expounded upon in the passage that Lee just read for us. That is, he's telling his disciples how he wants his followers to live, and here is what he basically said. He said, once you become a Christian, you are no longer your own. You are no longer your own. Once you become a Christian, your best thoughts... Your best efforts, your best imaginings that pass through your mind become the sole proprietorship of someone else. 
Now, living in the culture of the big me, supposing that all of life is engineered to somehow benefit me, you know, it's almost like we can't conceive that others, in this case, the master's needs that we're going to be looking at, are more important than my own. This is the ultimate form of idolatry, self-idolatry, idolatry and worship of self, which is really, it's the great idol of America. Ever since we sat down and watched Sesame Street as children, our culture has told us that we are the most special people in the world, which often translates, I think, to most important ones, and we should have and we deserve what we want. It's not a very popular message, but it is a thoroughly Christian message, one which Jesus expounded upon in Luke chapter 17, which we're going to be looking at this morning. It is a message that really goes against everything we have been raised to feel and believe, but one, if we dare to follow, it's a message that if we dare to follow, will free us like no other decision that we have ever made almost in our entire life, and when you are free, you are happier. Because once you become a Christian, Jesus was saying, you're no longer your own. So this morning, we want to look at three things that Jesus talks about in the passage that's related to this. I want to talk about the problem, problem that keeps us from this and grabbing onto this, the principle that Jesus laid out in stark terms for us all to follow, and the power that you're going to need to put it into effect, all right? So the problem, the principle, and the power, let's look at the problem first. The problem is me. The problem is you. As I said, this passage is, it's kind of hard to swallow at first glance. And as you read through this passage, it, it really seems negative and it really seems very harsh, which is probably why I've never preached this passage before. And when I began looking at it early in the week and started really digging into it, I said, why in the world did I pick this passage? You know, a few months ago when I was putting this, this thing, can I change? Is it too late to change, guys? Can I? No, no, you got to do it. All right. Well, so I, I had to go through with it. And I think as James Bradford pointed out, one of the reasons why I recoil a little bit at this whole passage is that it somehow affects and assaults my 21st century sensibilities. It really does, and passions. It talks about people having rocks tied around their necks and thrown into the ocean. I mean, what's that about? You know, you, you screw up, you get a rock around your neck and you get thrown into the ocean. About forgiving people who sin against me ad nauseum, seven times, eight times, whatever, in a single day. And, about, and, and, and it actually appears, the last part, the, the uh, part I want to really key in on this morning, it seems like there's a guy, a master, who exploits another human being for personal gain. What is going on? How in the world does this make me free and happy? The greatest barrier to our happiness is the person that stares at us in the morning when we look at the mirror. It's, it's me. It's us. So Jesus hits it head on with two extreme examples of self that hurts me and, by the way, hurts everyone around me. He says his followers are not to give offense and his followers are not to take offense. They're not to give offense and not to take offense. First, giving offense. When you give offense, you hurt others, and you end up hurting yourself. First, he starts off, and Jesus starts off with this entire passage, moving into the story. He starts off by uh, talking about how easy it is to lead other people into stumbling, into sin. And he says, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone to whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. And then those three ominous words, right? So watch yourselves. Parents, have you ever done that? You know, we're watching you. 
He tells them to watch themselves. Now, you know, uh, there's an awful lot of ways in which Christians can lead other people to sin, other ways that I have led people to sin. Sometimes we lead other people and other Christians astray and cause them to sin by false teaching based on a faulty understanding of the scriptures. That happens all the time. Some of you remember Harold Camping, who used to be a WFME, who said, you know, the world is ending in May, whatever it was, and, and there was actually some people over, uh, overseas who actually committed suicide because they were so frightened, and, 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 and people here who gave away their life savings to spread the word, and then nothing happened. It was all built on one man's thought because he went into a, a room by himself and decided that, you know what, this is what the scriptures say with nobody else helping him and studying with him, and that's why we need each other. You know what, sometimes we do enormous, enormous damage when we look at what we think is truth that has not been checked, that has not been put through any kind of lens, and, and we start spouting unorthodox views of scripture. Sometimes it happens over time, but people get hurt. When that happens, people sometimes are led to sin. I was watching a thing last night on Jim Jones. Did anybody see that on CNN about Jonestown? You know, an anniversary, terrible thing. You know, it's, it's coming up in, the, in November. And, and the guy seems like he started off kind of, you know, not bad. And he turned into a, a lunatic. You know what? Sometimes by our false teaching, you know, every, every cult that has ever gained traction in the hearts and minds of individuals started out by someone, usually a single individual, interpreting the scriptures through a highly filtered, highly biased lens who gathers around himself a group of people searching, hurting people, and he manipulates them through peer pressure. But it doesn't have to be a cult. You know what? I have been in many stern, sad churches who some of them have the word grace out on the sign at the road, but they offer very little of that. And they weigh people's consciences down with guilt. And they're really strong on the first part of the gospel, which says, you know what? You're more sinful than you could ever imagine. In fact, that's their only message. And it leads to a congregation that is frustrated, self-loathing, and fear-based. Others are really strong in the second part of the gospel. Second part of the gospel, which says what? God loves you more than you could ever imagine and sent his son to pay your sin penalty. And they are huge. There are some churches I've been in, they are, you know, you walk in and it's like, you know, I feel like I'm back in the 60s again, man. Everybody's loving and just hugging and kissing. And it's like, whoa, man, we're, you know, peace, brother, whatever. And I've been in churches like that. And you feel God's love. You feel the love of God so much. But then if you follow these churches, they never get to the first part. They never get to the part that, you know what, you are more sinful than you'll ever, you can ever imagine. So there's no judgment. All dogs go to heaven. And you know what? It starts to morph into this, you know, it's like God loves you, God loves you, God loves you. Don't worry about your lifestyle. Don't worry about anything else. You know, sanctification, holy living, uh, yeah, it's there, but don't worry so much about that. See, they're unbalanced. When we become unbalanced, we could destroy lives. We destroy people. Jesus said, by their fruit, you'll know them. By their love, joy, peace, patience, long-suffering, you will know them. Let me ask you, are you increasing in any of those things? 2015, increasing in any? Often, an emphasis either way leads to the biggest reason Jesus gave his warning. 
that most people get the wrong idea about him and about what Christianity is about. You know how? By observing us, by looking at us. A lot of times, you know, we're very big in our culture by saying, you know, I don't care what other people think. I'm my own man. I'm my own woman. I've gotten past that. I'm old enough now. I used to think, care about what people think, and now I don't really care anymore. Uh, you should care. You need to care about what people think. Jesus says, you know what? It does matter what people see. It does matter what people say. You are an example. People are going to notice, and if you, a professing Christian, are harsh, sometimes inapproachable, gossipy, you, you, know, you make promises that you never keep, you, you have sexual ethics that are not much removed from everybody else, people pick up on that. When we live inconsistently, we invariably cause others to stumble. And you know what they say? If that is what Christianity is about, there's no power in that. They're not doing anything I'm not doing. Jesus says, my followers will, will be concerned with giving offense. They will assume that this burden that he actually calls them to, they will assume the burden of, you know what? Caring what other people see and caring what other people say. Not, not to the point where we're going, oh, gee, you know, you didn't get the wrong impression, did you? I'm sorry, I don't mean, not like that. I don't mean that. I mean, you know, they will get the general wrong impression that, you know what? They're no different than me. They're no different than me. People pick up on that. Jesus says they're going to assume that burden because they know that they are not their own anymore. They're mine. My kids are concerned with giving offense. Second thing, they're concerned with taking offense. On the other hand, he turns around and he says, look, I don't want you to take offense all the time. You know, we, we live in a culture. I almost feel like people walk around with a chip on their shoulder, and they're just looking for somebody to knock it off. Would you please knock this off? Because I feel like bashing somebody, and it might as well be you. You know, do you ever get that feeling in our culture? You need to be the kind of person who is ready, ready to forgive those who have sinned against you as God was and is ready and willing and able to forgive the, your offenses against him. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive. We must be a forgiving people because forgiven people are forgiving people. You've heard me say that once or twice, right? Like last week? Yeah. We say that all the time. And that's, that's listen. I know what you're thinking. This does not mean that you let people walk all over you. But when someone comes and genuinely repents, genuinely repents, our call is to take no offense and forgive because once you become a Christian, you're no longer your own. You don't have the right to nurse grudges. We no longer have the luxury to say, well, my life is my business, you know? It's my business. No, it's not. You no longer have the luxury of living a self-contained island sort of existence. You know, Simon and Garfunkel sang, I am a rock, I am an island. But for the Christian, the words of the poet, politician, and theologian, John Donne, more appropriately reflects the biblical standard when he wrote this, no man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clog be washed away by the sea, Europe is less. Any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind. Christianity, listen, Christianity is not a private affair. It is a family one. And Luke chapter 17 is about familial obligations. No man and no woman who calls themselves a Christian is an island. We have responsibilities 
to one another. So we are not to be the cause of sin. We are accountable to watch ourselves. Likewise, we are to forgive those who sin against us. And in doing so, we support other people's relationships with Jesus Christ. The problem often stems in one direction. It's ourselves. Our eyes are firmly on ourselves, so we can't break free, and we don't have that musical laugh infused with gratitude that David Brooks wrote about. Because once you become a Christian, you're no longer your own. You see, that's the problem. That's the problem. What about the principle? What about the principle? The principle is obedience. The disciples, this is really funny. I try to I always try to put myself at the scene, you know? When, you, when you're reading stories of scriptures, it's always good to just kind of sit there and maybe write out what you would say and stuff like that. And I, you know, I'm sitting there this week, and I'm thinking about the disciples. They're listening, they're looking at themselves, and Jesus is talking about forgiveness and forgiving others and blah, blah, doing the whole thing. And then, you know, I can imagine them saying, wow, that's heavy. Jesus, that, you know, <laughs> I never thought about it that way. You know, watching my life because others are watching me, unlimited in my forgiveness, woo, that is tough. Well, guys, what do you say? And that's the disciples. What do you say? We, I think we can do this for, for his sake. I really think we can do this. Jesus, we're with you. We're, gonna, we're, we're going with you. We heard your voice. We hear you loud and clear. We're, you know, we're, we're not sure. We're pretty sure we can't do it ourselves. So we just have one request, just one request, because we are weak men. You know it. You've seen us every day. You live, sleep, eat, you know, everything. Breathe with us. You know what we're about. So we have just one request, and the request was in verse 5. They all said together collectively, increase our faith. In, increase our faith. What you're asking us really goes beyond what we have in, you know, what we have in our faith tank, so to speak. So we need you to increase our faith to do the things that you have called us to do. It's quite a request. And I am sure that they waited around as they said that, you know, Lord, increase our faith. And they waited around, and they were expecting Jesus to say, guys, this is fabulous. I have been waiting for you. You know what? I have been waiting for this for, you know, years now. We've been traipsing around the countryside, and you're asking for more faith. That's exactly what I've always wanted to give you, of course. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he tells them a story that, listen, basically rebukes them. Rebukes them. Why? Because Jesus was just wise enough to know that the disciples had just offered him a ready-made excuse as to why they were disobedient men. They, they, they're not ones who say, we don't, we're very forgiving. We forgive people a hundred times. Yeah, these are the guys that wanted to call down fire on the one town that they walked in because people were like rude to them. Yeah, 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 absolutely, we get it, okay? Jesus was rebuking their call for greater faith. You think this is the first time that Jesus had ever told these guys to forgive others? You think this is the first time he talked to them about a sanctified, separated life, a holy lifestyle? These boys had grown up going to Hebrew school. The Old Testament is replete with such admonitions, and Jesus knew that the problem was not a faith deficiency 
How do I know? Well, he says in verse 6. Look at what he says in verse 6. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. You know what Jesus was saying? Jesus was saying that I am less concerned about faith's volume in your life than I am with faith's presence. He was less concerned with the volume of faith as he was with the fact that it's there. Jesus knew that small faith could accomplish amazing things and lead to amazing events. He says, don't worry about the size of your faith. And so the disciples are probably sitting there going, well, that's not what we expected. Then they're looking at each other well, oh, <laughs> great. Then there's no problem, right? Yeah, there is. That's why he tells them the story. Now, briefly, I just want to go briefly through this uh, story. It's, uh, as I said, it's kind of offensive. Uh, the servant in this story is out in the field all day. He's out in the field all day, basically multitasking. We think we multitask. This guy really multitasks. I'll tell you why. He's out behind the ox, plowing the dirt, doing all that hard physical labor. At the same time, the text tells us, he's shepherding. He's watching the sheep. And these stupid sheep, you know what? I mean, they, they're getting lost all the time. I mean, the sheep, they'll eat a little thing grass, and they went here, then they're interested here. And all of a sudden, they look back, and they go, hey, where did, where did all those guys go? And the shepherd knows that any time there's always wild animals, they're waiting. You've all seen, you know, the Discovery Channel, whatever it is, Nature Channel. You know, when they're waiting, they're sitting there. You can't even see them. They just wait, wait, And they're waiting for the gazelle to just one more second to look. Don't, don't look up, you know. And then he, they pounce. See, the shepherd knows that. Shepherd knows that. So he's doing this enormously stressful job, this enormously physical job, and he comes in after a long, exhausting day, and he smells, and his skin is reddened from the hot sun. Now, being the type of people that you are here at the Crossing Church, and I know we have a very unique church, and, you know, our leadership is, is amazing. What we would say if this guy came in to our living room, we would say, hey, man, tough day, huh? You want a drink? You want a nice, cool drink? Let me get you something uh, you want something to eat? Thanks for your hard work. We'd all say that, right? If it was our, somebody working for us. That's not what happens. What happens in verse 8 is this. The guy comes in. He just drags himself and He says, prepare my supper. Get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink. After that, you may eat and drink. Now, this guy, for all the world, I got to tell you something. <laughs> He sounds like he's exploiting his servant because of his position of power. And basically, he's saying to him, I don't care really how you feel. Like, you know, you're tired, you're sick, you're sweating, you're just about ready to faint from the sun. I don't really care. I want my meal. After I'm served, then you can take care of yourself. There's nothing about personal rights. There's no fairness. There's no equality. There's not even any thankfulness all we find is that most destructive, distasteful word, the last word in the entire section at the end of verse 10, duty, responsibility, obligation. Now, for most of us, this story, as I said before, it bothers our Western 21st century souls. In our Western culture, we've been conditioned to think basically that we're entitled. We have certain things that should come our way that must come our way. And we are less bound by duty than we are by expectations. But remember, I've said this a few times, remember this text was not written to us 
It was written for us. It wasn't written to us. It was written to another culture. And listen, that other culture, let me just tell you something right now. When they heard Jesus doing this story, nobody's freaking out. Everybody goes, yeah, we get it. This is not one of those stories where Jesus told to raise eyebrows. Oh, well, what a lousy guy he is. Man, we got to go preach to him, Jesus. You need to, you know, let's lay hands on this guy so that he gets a gentle spirit or something, you know, about him. This made perfect sense to them. The disciples were not surprised at the master's reply at the servant. You know what surprised them? You know what the shock value was in this story for them? The fact that Jesus, they got this suspicion that Jesus was calling them to be servants. These were power guys. They had watched Jesus work powerfully in the lives of many people. Being a poor servant from power, they don't seem to go together. They were into power. They were into seeing amazing things happening, but they weren't into being servants, so they couldn't understand the principle. Yet, that was the only way. Interesting enough, it was the only way that they were ever going to see power exerted in their lives. Now, there's another passage in the gospel that many of you are very familiar with where Jesus asked, who is greater, the servant or the master, right? You remember that one? Who's greater, the servant or the master? Which is like asking, who's greater, the waiter or the customer, right? That's kind of, you, you up, upgrade it now. The customer's greater. The waiter serves the customer. But Jesus said he came to be the waiter. That's what he said. And if you decide to take on this role that I am calling you to, everything's going to change. Everything will change. Because once you realize that you were a servant and your role is to serve, it changes everything. First thing you will understand is that, uh, you know what? The master really owes, really owes us nothing. He really owes us nothing. A Christian is somebody who at some point figures that out. A Christian is somebody who learns that. How often do we find ourselves collapsing, curling up into a fetal position, moaning and weeping emotionally because we feel God owes us something? This is something that I was owed. God didn't bring it, so you know what? <laughs> I don't know. And we, we curl up into a fetal position. That, that somehow we believe God has failed us in some way. And you know what we become? We become the victim. And do you know what emotion is rife in victims? You know what it is? Anger. If you have a victim mentality, you are an angry person all the time. All the time. You feel that you had something coming to you? You feel that somehow God or somebody else slighted you? I'm a victim. Now you're angry, and our anger spills out to everybody around us. We assume God owes us a good life, and so that if something happens that makes it not so good, not so great, we kick, we scream, we pout, we shake our fists, and we say, you owe me. And we make everybody around us, as I said, miserable in the process. But folks, the Bible really says that God owes us nothing, just as a master owes his servant nothing. But when you come to realize that you are a servant, you know what happens to the anger that has ruled your life? It begins to drain. Because a servant is somebody who understands God owes him nothing. His needs are a priority. Our needs are secondary. And now let me just back up a half step, having said that, okay? The master 
needs something. In fact, the master needs something that only the servant can provide. Okay, let's take on the servant role here. We're servants. We want to be servants. God needs something that only we can provide. You say, well, the Bible says he has this, I guess you'd call it a self-imposed need that only, only we can meet and help him with. You know what that is? It's to get the gospel out. It's to spread the word. He needs help in bringing in the harvest. The harvest is great, so pray, the scriptures say, pray for servants to go out into the harvest. His self-imposed need is that he needs help with the harvest. Now, you know, this is a God who really who has no needs, but he, he almost imposes on himself this need. He imposes on himself his desire to use us to bring about his plan. The master's needs are more important than our needs. You know what he needs? He needs people serving the church. He needs people serving the community. He needs people giving, working with youth, working with children, teaching, making meals, tending to the psychological, emotional, and spiritual, and physical needs of his children. He needs people like that. He needs arms and legs on the planet. He doesn't need an army of people with astounding faith. He needs an army of people with varying degrees of faith who are submissive to the principle of obedience. That's what he needs. That's what this story is all about. It's about being obedient. And what he is saying is that faith, no matter where you're at right now, and he's not against growing faith because I believe that as we're obedient, our faith will grow. That is a goal. But faith, along with obedience, opens up for God our use. And basically, it opens up his presence to work among us. And we should not fret about how great our faith is or how little our faith is. What we need to do is apply it and watch it work and consequently grow, as I just said. The disciples' main responsibility is to offer God what we have by way of faith, trust him, and Ready? Underscore, highlight, italics, all the thing on the top of the page, right? Obey. Obey. A servant has one main job, to obediently care for the needs of the master. He owes us nothing except to throw us, folks, in debtor's prison. That's really what he owes us. He owes us nothing. A Christian is somebody who understands that because once you become a Christian... You are no longer your own. What about the power? The power. Where's the power come from? What are we talking about when we're talking about power? And he's talking about power in here. Well, it's to obey. The servant is called on to obey without qualification, without reservation, without condition. The servant is like the genie in the bottle, right? You know, the guy's walking on the beach, and the genie comes up, and it's like, your your wish is my command kind of thing. That's, That's the role of a servant, Your wish is my command. And here's what he says. Here's what a true servant will say. He says, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. If you read this story, if that's the end of the story, you go, all right, it's a little bit of a bummer. But, uh, you know, okay, it's it's the Bible. I mean, it's the kind of thing where, you know, I don't have to like everything. I I don't even have to understand everything fully. He's God. I'm not. He's done it all for me through his son. I should have no complaints. It's what I'm supposed to do. So I'll do it. Okay. But listen, if you do any sort of serious Bible study, you got to know one thing. Part of the hermeneutic of an evangelical is we must study Scripture in the context of where the Scripture is. 
We believe that the authors of Scripture were uniquely inspired to write the very thoughts of God. And if we believe that, you know what else we got to believe? we got to believe that God also arranged those thoughts, not haphazardly, but systemized. In fact, a lot of times you'll see the same story in the Gospels, but it's in a different context. And the story takes a little bit different curve. If you read the story in the full context of the scripture, whether it's in John or whether it's in Mark or whether it's in Luke or Matthew, it takes a little bit different turn. When I say that, what am I talking about? If you have your Bibles and you're at Luke 17, look at the story that is immediately after this one. The story that's immediately after this one says this, verse 11. You know, Lee read verse 10 and then she sat down. Verse 11 says this. Now, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance, and they called out, screamed out really is the word. They screamed out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. Leprosy. It's not eradicated from the world. There are still uh, some places uh, that have leprosy, but it was rife then. And, and it was probably the worst illness you can get in the ancient world. It was not only horrible, it was not only disfiguring, it was not only an untreatable disease that literally had you, I don't want to be gross, but had you watching as digits and nose and stuff atrophied and, and fell off your body. You know, that's exactly what it was. It was not only horrible in that sense, it was also a social disease. Because once you were diagnosed with leprosy, you were put out of the community. You could only live with other lepers, waiting for the disease to run its course and eventually take your life. That's why in verse 12, they stood at a distance. They were not allowed to get anywhere near other people. That's why they're always shouting. Whenever you hear lepers, they're always screaming and yelling. They must have had hoarse voices too. On top of everything else, they lose their voice you know, all the time because they had to scream and yell whenever they wanted to talk to somebody who wasn't a leper. And in verse 13, they cry out to Jesus to help them, to heal them. They had heard that Jesus heals. They had heard about this new rabbi. And, and they were sick. And you know what? Anybody who's sick, what do they want? What do they want? They want to be healed, right? That's what they want. But Jesus doesn't heal them. He said, wait a minute. Wait, I, I, just, I got it right in front of me. Yeah, he does. Jesus does not heal them. He gives them a command. He says to them in verse 14, when he saw them, he said, go show yourselves to the priest. You say, well, that's weird. I mean, what, for confession for something? I mean, what are they going to show themselves to the priest for? Well, look, not only were the priests religious leaders in those days, not only were they political leaders, they were also the health officials in almost every town. They had the final say in whether one was declared a leper and, a, and so a social outcast for the rest of their lives or could be welcomed back into the community if they were somehow healed. So Jesus, instead of healing them, tells them to go and show themselves to the health officials of the community, which must have sounded not only strange to them, but bordering on cruel. I mean, bordering on cruel. You know, you look in the mirror and you see the disfiguring results of this insidious disease taking its toll, and you say, well, you know, that's it. It's just, it's a matter of months, maybe a year. Maybe two. 
But all of a sudden you hear, you know, people talking. You go, that new rabbi's coming to town. The healer, this guy's going to be here. He's going to be in our town. And all of a sudden you say, you know, what luck that is. And you know what? They get all excited. And so they, they see him coming through town and they scream out, have mercy on us, have mercy. But instead, he tells you to go show yourselves to the priest. Why? Why? So that we could once again be proclaimed by the same priest unclean and berated for entering into the town. You know, maybe he'll be so ticked off now that we disobeyed him to go live in this designated area that he's going to move us two miles further out of town. And now we'll never see anybody. Maybe our families in town will be now further embarrassed if I go, further pain than they already are. Or maybe everyone will just simply laugh. But the text says, in spite of the seeming illogical nature of the request, they obey. They go. You know, sometimes there are things I know I should do. You know, I should have written a thank you note. Uh, You know, that was rude. I should have written that. Somebody said, I should have, you know, I should have visited the sick brother. I should have written that check for this or for that. And I'm not talking about feeling like, you know, I have to do everything, like I said before, for everybody, which is, by the way, a common malady among people in my profession. This is why guys blow up and burn out and everything. I'm talking about really feeling God wants you to do something. Where you say, I really feel God's calling me to do this. And you know what happens when that happens to me sometimes? Maybe I'll wrestle a little bit with something. I don't have to do that. All right, you want me to do that? I'll do that. And then I, all of a sudden, when I say I'm going to do it, there's this amazing internal pressure that is, you know, that's released. Do you ever feel that way? Where, you know, you say, all right, Lord, I'm going to do that. And all of a sudden, you feel better. It's almost as if you already did the deed, but you didn't. You didn't do the deed. I had the ambition of a servant, but not the acts of one. And although having a servant's heart might bring me temporary relief, it never really helps anyone, including me. The request Jesus made of these sick men, you know, he called on what faith they have, and, and then he told them to go to the priest without having experienced the healing first. Notice that. These guys had not been healed. He said, now you're full of leprosy, you're white as snow, go in and show yourself. And they obey him and they go. See, our God is not a cruel master. We we talked about this last week. He is a loving father, and he has determined that as we go, as we obey, although he doesn't have to do it because he doesn't owe us anything, he blesses us. He does amazing things. And it says, as they went, that is in the process of obeying, they were what? Cleansed. They were cleansed. If we obey only when we understand fully, If we obey only when we can connect the dots, when we see the entire picture, we will never be healed. We'll never be healed. If we obey only when we see a payoff for us down the road, we're never going to be blessed, and we certainly can't say that's obedience. Having the ambition of a servant is one thing. Having the acts of one is something very different. A servant says, I'm in love with this person but I'm going to wait and confine the sexual expression of my love for that person until we are in the confines of the covenant relationship of marriage. Because even though at times I don't get it and I don't understand it, and the whys and the whats of God, he has said this, therefore, all things, what? Work 
together for my good. Right? We sang it before. He's working for our good. And I know he is so good and he is so right that if I happen to obey, I will be blessed. There's something about it. I don't get the whole thing, but there's something about it. A servant says, my inclination is not to forgive because of the tremendous hurt that this person has inflicted on me. But because you say so, Lord, I will take a baby step this day. And by your strength, I will walk this path. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'll walk this path. I have this much faith. That much. But I'm going to take one tiny baby step. A servant says, I will tell the truth. A servant says, I will take my time and my talent and my precious treasure, and I will start to give it away. And I'll do it right away. A servant does not say, when you help me get things together, Lord, then I will obey. When the finances are up to speed, when the health comes back, when the promotion comes through, then I will obey you. If you do, if that's how you operate, you're just agreeing with God. You're not obeying him. And there's a difference. There's a difference. You have the ambition of a servant, but not the acts And the master calls for far more than mere mental assent. He calls for obedience. Don't you see? What if the lepers had just sat there and said, whoa, (laughs) wait a minute. You know, no disrespect, new rabbi in town, but I think we're all going to, am I right on this, guys? We will obey when we feel the time is right. And we're kind of agreed that the time will be right when you heal us, when you cleanse us. See, the power came to them in the doing. Help me get my life together. Then we'll talk is not the heart of a servant. A servant is somebody who does whatever he's asked to do. He makes no conditions. A servant is somebody who says, it doesn't matter in what area. It doesn't matter how inconvenient or how much. I know what I owe you. I owe you everything. I'm going to do my duty. See, that's what a servant says. And until we are willing to say that, God will forever remain our consultant, but not our master. So what happened? Well, verse 15. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice, and he threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. He was a Samaritan. That's a big deal. And Jesus asked, we're not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, Rise and go. What? Your faith has made you well. What kind of faith was it? How big you think it was? It was faith just, just big enough to go beyond ambition to the act itself. And that is when everything started to happen. That is when the power came in. That is when Jesus unleashed the power of heaven. Because, folks, once you become a Christian, Jesus was saying, once you become a Christian, you are no longer your own. Jesus Christ gave everything for us. Jesus Christ became and was the perfect servant. Paul says in Philippians, he humbled himself and became obedient to death Even, exclamation points, Paul is like saying this and he's going, I I can't even believe what I'm about to write. Even death on a cross. And because he did, the blessings of God were unleashed to those who formerly were enemies of God. The blessings were unleashed. Now, you know what? We can draw near to God through Christ because of what he has done for us. And we have 
that magnificent blessing of being called sons of God. Would you bow your heads right now? You're listening to me today, and uh, maybe you're, you know, I don't know. God's Spirit has been talking to you. Ian prayed that God's Spirit would, you know, come on in. Come on in and uh, do, do a work with us. And maybe God is doing a work with you. Maybe there are areas in your life that you now see that you have decided to willingly disobey God. It's been there, and you just keep, you know, whenever the thought comes up, you just kind of look the other way. It's that, it's that room, you know. It's that room in the house that you, you keep, you know, locked and shut away. And you have willingly disobeyed God. And, we, and you wonder sometimes, you know, where is the power? Where is the blessing of God? Folks, it may be right there in that room. And so right now, with your little faith, you just want to step out and say, uh, I'm done. You have called me to serve, to give, to do this, to do that. I've known it. I just haven't wanted to do it, but I've known it. And right now, before all of heaven, you are ready to say, I repent. Oh God, forgive me. I know you owe me nothing, but you gave me everything in your son. Everything. You pronounced judgment and you provided the penalty for my sins. You've given us everything, God, and we thank you for it. And right now we want to just say, no more disobedience. We're going to obey. And as we sing this last hymn, let God speak to your heart. And pray a prayer back to him that says something like, uh, today is a new day because I am a Christian and I am no longer my own for Christ's sake. 